January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Welcome to the 142nd episode of Egg Timer Philosophy. I'm your host, Eric Roark, and today's episode will finish up this year's summer series with the discussion of the philosophical themes from the last quarter of 1984. Last episode ended with Winston and Julia being captured by the party. Their hiding place above Mr. Charrington's shop had never really been much of a hiding place, and now they've been taken away by the thought police. At this point in the story, Orwell turns his focus towards Winston's ordeal at the Ministry of Love, which, given the party's use of doublethink and language manipulation, is really more like the Ministry of Death and Torture. We never really learn much more at all about Julia's treatment at the ministry, and she makes only one further appearance towards the end of the book, but more on that later. The story from here revolves around Winston, until, essentially, the conclusion of the book. One of Winston's first interactions, when he is brought to the Ministry of Love, is with another prisoner named Parsons. Winston works with Parsons at the Ministry of Truth and also lives in the same building as him. Parsons is a subsidiary character in the novel, and we don't know much about him except that Orwell portrays him as a bit of an oaf, with children who seem like budding members of the Thought Police. So, pretty awful. Parsons is being held as a Thought Criminal. His children turned him in for speaking unorthodoxy in his sleep. What's interesting here is that Parsons is not upset with his children or the party. Quite the opposite. He believes that he must be a thought criminal and that his unconscious declarations in his sleep are just proof of this. But it's pretty clear that Parsons is no thought criminal. He's the definition of harmless. Yet he's so committed to whatever version of truth that the party establishes that he genuinely believes that he must be guilty and deserves whatever punishment he gets. Parsons is a man completely broken by the party and and unable to form independent thoughts about reality. For months after Winston's imprisonment in the Ministry of Love, he is held in what seems to be a fairly standard jail cell and deprived of adequate care and nutrition. But he's physically withering away. The passages drawing out Winston's demise are pretty graphic. He's losing teeth and seems to be mere skin and bones. This process is a drawn-out one. And a fair question for the reader here is, why doesn't the party simply execute Winston? They easily have that power, and they're not shy about doing such things. It could be that the party simply wants to make Winston suffer before they execute him. But as the story unfolds, the answer is much more complex than this. The time has finally come for Winston to meet his interrogator, and he is taken to room 101. That room will have special significance later. It turns out that his interrogator is none other than O'Brien. The meeting at his house, the giving of the book purportedly written by the leader of the Brotherhood, Goldstein, all all seem to have been a ruse to gather information about Winston. The two exchange some words, and O'Brien tells Winston that they have been watching him for a long time. 
So it was probably the case that right from the start of the story, the party knew that Winston was rebellious and hated the party. The journal he kept, his trip to the proles section of town, his love affair with Julia, all of this was probably known by the party from the get-go. Winston's interrogation ramps up with O'Brien connecting him to some type of electric shock machine. When Winston is dishonest or gives a wrong answer, according to O'Brien, he gets shocks of increasing magnitude. This is somewhat similar to those infamous Stanley Milgram shock experiment um, uh, classics in social psychology. There is no direct questioning concerning Winston's rebellious activity. The party already knows all this, and that is not why Winston is being interrogated. O'Brien explains to Winston that he, Winston, is insane because he is unable to comprehend reality. The shocks are being used to help Winston grasp the notion of reality offered by O'Brien through the lens of the party. But the problem for Winston here (laughs) is that he actually believes in objective truth and of an unalterable past that really did exist. But those beliefs run counter to the orthodoxy of the party. A repeated slogan of the party then makes its way into the interrogation. And the slogan is, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. O'Brien has Winston state this slogan, and Winston does so obediently. The party slogan, again, that's who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past, is the crux of the party's view of reality and truth. It also serves as one of the most endearing, enduring, not endearing, (laughs) enduring ideas from 1984. And if you're a fan of 90s rock music, you might recognize the slogan from the Rage Against the Machine song, Testify. O'Brien makes clear to Winston that the party is the origin of all truth because it alone controls the present. Nothing in the past or future, O'Brien explains, exists independently of the party's control. The idea O'Brien expresses here is that the party is reality, and that he is only trying to cure Winston's insanity for thinking otherwise. But Winston doesn't buy this idea, and rejects the notion that the party is the bearer of all truth. Winston still believes that two and two make four, and the party can't change that, no matter what they say or do. At this point, O'Brien holds up four fingers and asks Winston, how many fingers am I holding up? Winston says four. O'Brien then says, what if the party say there are five? Winston says there would still be four. And at this point, he gets a heavy dose of electric shock for that answer. The shocks continue until Winston finally says, all right, I see five fingers. But that's not good enough for O'Brien because he tells Winston that he doesn't really believe his answer of five. Winston will say anything to make the pain stop, but 
he can't make himself believe there are five fingers in front of them, in front of him, when he only sees four. During this whole torturous session, O'Brien tells Winston, and this is O'Brien directly, sometimes Winston, sometimes there are five, sometimes they are three, sometimes they are all of them at once. You must try harder. It is not easy to become sane. The session ends with Winston no longer sure what the true answer is. And at this stage, O'Brien seems happy enough with that. Before moving to the last and final stage of Winston's interrogation, there's an important philosophical point to add here. The reader's reaction is very likely that the party is a sadistic and evil group, and that and that they are merely using psychological and physical manipulation to achieve power. That's completely fair. I agree with that reading, but without more, it misses the deeper threat and danger of the party. O'Brien can be seen as espousing a certain type of view here, and I'll just call that radical political presentism. Remember that slogan, who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past? That idea doesn't deny, per se, that there is a past or future, but it does suggest that the control of such things is completely dependent on who controls the present. And as O'Brien would be quick to say, the party controls the present. Now, it's abundantly clear that what the party does is evil. I don't think there is much debate about that. But what's so dangerous about O'Brien's defense of what can be called radical political presentism is that the view itself is not an easy one to counter, generally speaking. Here's what I mean. And I discussed some of this back in episode 114 um, when I talked about the topic of metaphysical presentism. There are no independent ways to validate the past and with it past experience without appealing to present experience. Experience is always found in a happening mental state, not a past or future one. We can experience a memory and say it is about the past, but that recollection still happens in the present. We can roll the tape, so to speak, but that recording is still being experienced in the present. O'Brien actually addresses this very point in the interrogation when he tells Winston that the party controls all memory. The second half of the party slogan is, after all, who controls the present controls the past. Any memory that we think offers us a guide to a past that exists separate from the present is only accessible through an experience that must be presently occurring. O'Brien is evil and sadistic. But his defense of radical political presentism generally isn't incoherent, and that makes the party all the more dangerous. An additional element here, which Orwell adds to the danger of the party, is that unlike past totalitarian governments, the party treats power as an end in itself. They don't treat it as a means to amass wealth or carry out horrible acts like genocide. Now, the party isn't above these things, but, that, but those things aren't why power is valued by the party. O'Brien tells Winston that governments which treat power as a means to some 
other end or goal are doomed to fail at some point. But not the party, because for the party, power itself is the end. It is not a means to achieve some other goal. And readers of 1984 will be familiar with the numerous examples of governments around the world that have done awful things, and none of those should be minimized one bit. But the addition of an evil government that sees power itself as the only thing of value is especially chilling. More than other parts of 1984, these sections covering radical political presentism and the treatment of power as an end in itself highlight Orwell, not just as a brilliant writer, but thinker as well. Winston's interrogation now moves on to its second stage, and things, believe it or not, are about to get much worse for him. It turns out that Room 101 is the room where a prisoner is confronted with their greatest fear, to a lesser and especially horrible form of torture. Since all people have different worse fears, Room 101 is different for everyone. The party might know the greatest fears of people through their massive surveillance, or maybe the thought police have ways of detecting this, but however they get that information, they use it in Room 101. Winston's greatest fear is rats. And O'Brien uses that information to devise a special type of torture for Winston. He places a contraption on Winston's head with wires holding back a rat from Winston's face. In time, the rat will make its way through and attack a defenseless Winston. O'Brien comments that the device was used as a common punishment in Imperial China. Now, anyone would be terrified of this scenario, but Winston is especially terrified. He is in complete emotional breakdown as the rat scratches closer and closer to his face. Finally, moments before the rat breaks free to feast on him, Winston blurts out, and this is him directly. Do it to Julia. Do it to Julia. Not me. Julia. I don't care what you do to her. Tear her face off. Strip her to the bones. Not me. Julia. Not me. This ends the interrogation, and Winston is spared the attack from the rat. But he is only spared because the party has accomplished its goal. They have killed Winston's spirit and made it so Winston did the one thing he thought the party could never make him do. He has completely, not just in words, but in his heart, betrayed Julia. He now sees truth and reality just as the party wishes him to see it. In many ways, the novel is effectively done at this point, but Orwell adds a bit more for concluding thoughts here. Winston leaves the Ministry of Love, but he leaves as a different person. He is no longer rebellious or even capable of such a thing. He does have a quick run-in with Julia, but it's clear that whatever they had once is long gone now. They both tell each other that they betrayed one another, and they go on their separate ways. The final passage of 1984 ends with Winston in a bar, finding himself in a dream about the Ministry of Love and being killed by the party. As he awakes, he peers at a picture of Big Brother, and the novel concludes with the following devastating passage. Two gin-scented tears trickle down the sides of his nose. 
But it was all right. Everything was all right. The struggle was finished. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. This conclusion is really what has made Orwell one of the most important dystopic writers of the modern era, maybe any era. If Winston had been killed or tortured in even more grotesque ways, that obviously would have been very bad. But this is somehow even worse, because the party was able to turn Winston into one of them. It was able to consume his sense of self and replace it with their sense of self. They were able to change not just how he acted, but how he thought and felt. Winston genuinely loving Big Brother can be seen as representing the end of humanity and freedom and offers us all a view of political totalitarianism in its most dangerous form. An evil government that does horrible things can be stopped only if there are people capable of stopping it, and that, might, that must start with the psychological capacity to do so. 1984 offers us a world where, in the end, Winston loves Big Brother, and resistance is not merely dangerous or unlikely to succeed, but ultimately unthinkable. Thanks for joining me for this year's summer series. I hope you enjoyed, and until the next episode of Ed the Egg Timer, wishing you good philosophical vibes.